where the Apostle John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I mentioned last time that I wanted to talk very practically about the concept of not loving the world. And I think it would be good for us to start out tonight by giving a definition of worldliness as we begin. Uh, Our men, as you know, are going through uh, the book Worldliness, Resisting the Seduction of a Fallen World, uh, edited by C.J. Mahaney. And I think he gives a good definition of worldliness on page 27. He says this, Worldliness is a love for this fallen world. It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. And then he says this, More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. I think that's a good practical working definition of worldliness. To gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. Now, how can I know that I'm worldly? How can I know that? Practically speaking, I want to ask some questions tonight. And the first one is this. Ask yourself what you most value. If the definition by C.J. Mahaney is true, if he says that it is the exclusion of God in our lives, it's the exalting of oneself to value and to pursue the things of this fallen world, ask yourself the question, are you involved in worldly pursuits or godly pursuits? Are you into God's agenda or are you into your own agenda? Those are questions that we all must ask ourselves if we're going to get to the practicalities of what it means not to love the world. And I've put up here some principles that I want all of us to grasp tonight, seven of them in all, and the first one is this, biblical principle number one on worldliness. Ask yourself what most occupies your time and desires. Just think about that for a moment. I wish we had time for all of us to look down at our Bibles, to look down uh, at the question and ask ourselves in meditative fashion, what most occupies my time and my desires? Because that's probably something that's going to get us much to the heart of our own worldliness or not. That's a very, very good place to start. And I'm going to give you these seven principles, this being the first one, all beginning with the letter A, so that you might be able to remember these in the time to come. And if you don't have a pad or pencil or pen there, uh, I want you to think through these. Ask yourself what most occupies your time and your desires. Another couple of questions. What most occupies my time? What do I spend most of my time in my thinking and in my doing? If you want to ask the question, am I a worldly person? Am I in love with the world? Ask yourself the question, what do I spend most of my time in my thinking and in my doing? Especially my discretionary time. When I'm not having to go to work, uh, when I'm not forced to be at school, uh, when I'm not having someone else tell me where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing, that's what the word discretionary means, what am I doing in that discretionary time? Time on my own. The freedom that I have in the time and the pursuits that I follow. Or what about my thoughts? What do I spend time doing in my thoughts, my thought life? What about my desires, my aspirations, my goals? What are my goals in life? What do I aspire to do or to be? What about my interests? 
Where's my love? What's the object of my love? Where's my heart? My desires for the world, if I say I'm a Christian, can choke out my desires for God. If my truthful answers are the various pursuits of the world and its allurements, then I may not truly know Christ. If you've given yourself the answer to that question and you say, I can know immediately that I don't love the Lord, that I really do love the world, then that, of course, means that you're not a Christian, that you have a love affair going on with the world. But if you are sitting here tonight and you say to yourself, no, I really do believe I love the Lord. Well, if I am truly a Christian, I will then seek to put off my pursuits, put off my desires for the sake of putting on God's pursuits, God's desires. Remember that question I asked a moment ago? Am I a part of God's agenda or am I pursuing my own agenda? Well, if I'm pursuing God's agenda, then I'll want to put off those things of the world. I'll want to put on the things of Christ. I'll want to pursue Him. You see those passages listed there? If you're truly a Christian, you'll want to say something like this, Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's really someone who's a lover of Christ. They don't love the world. Their heart pants after God. Psalm 73:25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth, read in there, in the world, that I desire besides you. Can you say that? Can you say that in your heart of hearts? I don't desire anything but the Lord. Those are great questions to ask. Biblical principle number two on worldliness. Actively seek to put off or to kill or to mortify. It's an old word, but it's still a good one. The flesh with its passion and its desire. Actively seek to put off, to kill, to mortify the flesh with its passions and its desires. Not only ask yourself good, solid questions about whether or not you're a lover of the world or you're a lover of God, but if you say, I do love God, well, actively seek to put off the pleasures and the passions and the desires of this world. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And even though I have some of them listed here, many of them, I still want you to turn in your Bibles to read some of these because we'll go even beyond just the quotation of some of these verses as we talk about them. Ephesians 4, 18 to 22. Paul's going to tell us that believers are characterized as those who have and must put off their old way of life, their non-Christian days. Listen to Ephesians 4, 18 to 22. Speaking of unbelievers, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Do you notice that word there, that phrase that Paul uses, put off? To put off your old man. That's how believers are characterized. We've put off the things of the world. We eschew the things of the world. We want to jettison the things of the world because they don't profit us. We don't want to be characterized, as Paul says, unbelievers are characterized. Darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, their hardness of heart, having become callous to the things of God, sensuality, greedy, practicing every kind of impurity. He says, but that's not who you are, Ephesian believers. You've put off the old man. That's a great principle when you're asking yourself good questions about whether or not you love the world. Do I actively seek to continue to kill, to mortify 
the flesh, my desires, my passions. If that's the case with you, then you can have some great confidence that you do, in fact, love the Lord, that you aren't a person of the world, that you're not worldly. Notice, put off, kill, mortify all the desires which used to characterize you as an unbeliever. Colossians 3. Turn in your Bibles there. Colossians 3. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, in many ways a parallel text, and even into verses 8 and 9, put to death. There's where we come up with that principle. Put to death, kill, mortify, What is earthly in you, therefore? Sexual immorality. And then he's going to give us a list. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Even gives you a list. You must put them all away or put them off. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices. One way for you to gauge whether or not you are in love with the world is whether or not you are actively seeking to put off these very things that characterize the world. Notice them again. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. What's the basis why, uh, behind why Paul says that this is not the way you should be characterized. He says, seeing that you have put off the old man, you put him away. Now, someone, of course, will immediately ask the question, have I put him away completely? Uh, Is he forever put away from me? Well, yes and no. Uh, Yes in the judicial sense. Yes in the justifying sense. We are a new man. We're new men in Christ. But no in the sense that not all of our sin has been completely eradicated from our lives. We are in an active battle with the world, with sin, with remaining sin, to put it away from us, to put it off from us. All of these things that he describes here are things for which we actively seek to battle, to put away from us. Biblical principle number three, aggressively seek to put on There's a principle to put on, put off. Here's a principle to put on, to put on, to live, to walk in the spirit in accordance with his will, with the spirit's desires, with the spirit's character. If there are two needs of the Christian life, if you want to boil it all the way down to just two great needs, two must haves, it's to put off and to put on, to put off the things that don't really characterize me anymore as a believer in Christ, those practices of the old man. We're not putting off the old man. We're putting off the practices of the old man, the habits that were formed long ago when we were living in them, Paul says, and we put them off actively. And we also aggressively put on the characteristics of the new man. We are new man, but we also must be fully and aggressively putting on the practices of the new man. It's like this. When Paul says put off and put on, he's really talking about a metaphor of a jacket or clothes. And he says you ought to throw off the clothes of the old man, all of the habits, all of the ideas, all of the former manner of life that characterized all of us as unbelievers. And we ought to put on new clothes, put on a new jacket. And the new jacket is adorned with all of the right characteristics, all of the right kinds of thinking, all of the virtues of the Christian life. We ought to aggressively do that, to put on, to live, to walk in the Spirit, to be in accordance with His desire, His will, His his character. Some passages right in Colossians and Ephesians that speak to this. Look back at Colossians chapter 4. If we have a put off, here's then a put on. We're putting on Christian virtues which glorify Christ. Look down at verse 23. 
He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away or having put off falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. You see what he's talking about there? He says, this is what used to characterize you. You used to tell lies. It was instinctive with you. You always did it. It was the manner of life that you had. But now, now that you're in Christ, now that you've learned the way of Christ, put on truth-telling. Why? Because we are members of one another. And you don't want to treat your neighbor with falsehoods. You want to speak the truth to your neighbor because we're members one of another. Notice he goes on. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Why? Doing honest work with his own needs so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, you're not selfish anymore. You, you, you want to work and you want to work hard because you know that in the body of Christ, there's going to be somebody who's going to need you. They're going to need your labor. They're going to need your produce. They're going to need your money. They're going to need your time. And you want to work hard so that you can meet those who have need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away or be put off from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, it's not just put off, it's put on. It's not just actively seeking to put off, it's aggressively seeking to put on. That's when you can begin to know, I don't love the world. You know, I used to be characterized as a person who just loved the world. I loved the gratification of my own heart. I love to pursue the things about me and my pleasure. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be characterized in that way any longer. I want to, I want to actively seek to put off all of those wicked things that I used to be characterized by. And I want to aggressively seek to put on all of these virtues like Paul is talking about. For instance, look at Colossians chapter 3. He says, putting on Christian virtues means setting my mind on those virtues and then doing them. Look at verse 2 of Colossians 3. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's the world, the fallen world. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have put on the new man, verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on then, says it again, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Putting on these Christian virtues, Paul says, means to set my mind upon them. Is that what your mind apprehends? Is that what you think about? The world would suggest, grab for the gusto. Think of yourself. You deserve it. You deserve a break today. It's your day. Go for it. No rules, just right. You could go on and on and on with the advertising of the world. It's all centered on you, your needs, your desires, your interests. All of those things which pelt us with the concept of setting your mind on yourself. Paul says, no, 
aggressively seeking to put on these virtues means I set my mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. I don't set my mind there. I want to do these things by setting my mind upon them. Biblical principle number four on worldliness. Acknowledge the battle between the flesh and the spirit. There is in the New Testament this contrast, this battle, this war that rages between, for instance, what Paul calls the flesh and the spirit. The spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God. And the flesh is that which is characterized by the fallenness of this world. The flesh can be equated with the devil and his works. And the flesh can be equated to our own sinfulness. And the spirit is equated, of course, with the spirit of God. And the flesh is inherently against the Spirit of God. And even when we are regenerated and we are removed from the realm of the flesh, from the realm of this world, from this life and its evil purposes, even when we are regenerated and brought into new life to serve the Spirit of God, we have what we call remaining sin in us. And that remaining sin continues to entice us, to allure us, so that we are not following the dictates of the Spirit. And Paul says, when you are characterized by the flesh, that's your bent, that's your mindset, then you're not a Christian. When you are characterized by following the dictates, the will, the desires of the Holy Spirit, then you are setting yourself against the very desires in the way you once lived. And that, my friends, is a battle, and the battle continues on even after your regeneration, even after you come to faith in Christ. In fact, if you think about it, the battle really begins in earnest right there. It begins right there. Because beforehand, when you were living in the world, you always did the deeds of the world, you always loved the things of the world, there really wasn't a battle at all. Uh, You couldn't do anything else. You were only doing that which the world told you, dictated for you to do. And when you come to a life in the Spirit, when you follow the dictates of the Spirit, when you are characterized by the power of the Spirit, then that's really where the battle begins. Because when we come to faith in Christ, we become new creations. We are new, but we are not totally new. I wish if we were new, we would be perfectingly new and go right to heaven. But that's not God's plan. God's plan is for us to be involved, to acknowledge the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Notice this battle. Scripture speaks of the nature of the spiritual battle we wage with the world. That is the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Listen to Paul speak of this very conflict. Romans 8, 5 to 8. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds. Remember Colossians 3, setting your mind? Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see the dividing line between the two? To set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Try as someone might, as a non-Christian, as an unbeliever. They can give money. They can give time. They can give effort. They can think themselves very religious. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God, no matter what they do. Why? Because all of their good deeds, good in quotes, is even itself, themselves, tainted by sin. It's tainted by self. It's not, it's not given over to the glory of God. I've talked with people before, and even unbelievers don't understand the concept. When they talk about people doing good works, or they want to try to tout their own good works, and they say, you mean to tell me that none of that None of that at all is in 
that sense any good at all? Well, of course, because of the Spirit of God restraining evil in the world, we would say things are good, but they're bad good. Yeah, they're bad good. They're good in the sense that at least evil is not reigning triumphantly in every place and in every way. That's good, but it's a bad good. Because even when good triumphs, if it's not done for the glory of God, it's not good, but it's bad. Because it doesn't have as its ultimate aim the glory of God. It doesn't have as its aim the righteousness of God, the vindication of God. And when it does not have that as its motive, it may be good, but it's bad good. Now, you don't want bad, bad. Bad, bad is really bad. But bad, good is not as good as good, good. Because when good, good operates in the world, it is good deeds. There are good deeds being done for the glory of God, and that's good. That's very good. But the mind that is set on the flesh, that's not good. That is not good at all. And even when someone thinks they're doing good, and even if they presume that they're doing good, if it's not being done for the glory of God, that's not good. Because God is not glorified by a man exalting himself. You remember the definition by C.J. Mahaney? It's a person who is living his life for the exaltation of self to the exclusion of God. Someone may think he's doing good things, but if he's not doing it to the glory of God, it's not a good thing at all. That's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And this is, this is a great verse, Galatians 6.14, on this very issue of worldliness and how it comes to bear upon our lives. Listen to it, Galatians 6.14. Far be it from me, Paul says, to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Could you say that? Could you say that about your life? Look, I'm not boasting in anything. The only boasting that I'm boasting in is that I'm boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I have been crucified to the world. What is crucifixion? It's a symbol of death. I've died to the world, and the world has died to me. Boy, what a claim. What an amazing claim. I'm not going to boast in any of my achievements, in any of my accomplishments. Remember that unbeliever now, boasting in the things that they're doing, the good of this world. Paul says, I will not boast in such things. I will only boast in the cross and what the cross means. And the cross was itself a symbol of death. And I'm boasting in the death of Christ. Therefore, I better not be boasting in anything other than that, including my own boast that I put the world to shame. I put the world off from me. The world is of no value to me. He says, even if I boast, I'm not even going to boast in that. I'm not even going to boast in the idea that I don't love the world. No boasting there, because if we don't love the world, it's to God's glory. It's because of the power of His Spirit. It's not something I'm doing in my own power. What a great verse. If you were to memorize any verse in the New Testament on the concept of not loving the world, this may be it. This may be it. I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. In fact, turn there in Galatians chapter 5. I want to show you something marvelous Galatians chapter 5. You know when he talks about this symbol of death, this crucifixion that he talks about in Galatians 6.14? It's not something that he's choosing randomly, this word crucifixion. Notice how he uses it back in chapter 5, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Could you say that? Could you say, I belong to Christ Jesus and as a result of that, I have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. That's a monumental statement. I mean, who, who could say it? Who could say it with impunity, without fear of impunity? Who could say that? Who could assume that they would be bold enough, brash enough to say, I belong to Christ Jesus, and because of that belonging, that relationship, I've crucified the I've killed it. I've mortified it. I've put it to death. And as Pastor Todd said this morning, how can a man like that say at the end of his life, I'm the chief of sinners? Is he contradicting himself? What's he saying? What he's saying is, we as believers, the ones who belong to Christ, are not characterized as those who are willy-nilly pursuing the flesh, pursuing the passions and desires of the flesh. We're not, we're not in that group anymore. That's not who we are. We're not characterized by that anymore. Does that mean we're perfect? Does that mean we're sinless? Does that mean we've arrived? Not on your life. But what it does mean is that that is not who I am principally anymore. God's delivered me. I belong to Christ now. And because He's my new master, He's my new Lord, I don't want to be characterized in that way anymore. And when I find something in my life that makes me think that I look like the world, I want to kill it. I want to crucify it. I want to put it to death. That's what he's saying. I've been crucified to the world, and the world's been crucified to me. Look at biblical principle number five. We're going through these quickly. Number five. This is practical now. Ascertain which side of the conflict between the flesh and the spirit you're on. Ascertain which side you're on. Look at your life. You say, how do I do that? Well, how do I actively mortify my worldly desires? Look at Galatians 5. You're right there. Here's the list. Here's the list of the desires of the flesh. And here's the list of the desires of the fruit of the Spirit. Look at the desires of the flesh. As I run through these, just ask yourself the question, am I mortifying these things? Am I killing these things? Am I desiring to put them to death? Notice what he says in Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now that's a, that's a hideous list, isn't it? That's, that's not the kinds of things we ought to be characterized by as Christians. We ought to be asking ourselves the question, what characterizes me? Because if this is what characterizes me, then I'm not actively mortifying the flesh. I'm not putting it to death. I'm not trying to kill it. I'm not trying to be crucified to the world and the world to me. Are these strong desires in my life? Are they the ones that compel me? Think back to that question about discretionary time. What do I think about? What do I want to do? Anything on this list? Several things in this list? You say no. No. It's the desires. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. What opposites? What opposites? Are these the desires of my life? Are these the kinds of things I'm attempting to put on in my life? You see, if I can reasonably conclude that I'm walking in the Spirit, I have to do something next. And what do I do? I have to understand the warfare. Remember back in Colossians 3 and Romans 6, I said that we have to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. I have to understand that the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace, I must win the battle for the control of my mind. That's where it's always going to start. It's what I think. It's what op- occupies my mind. You remember when we went through it with Romans 12 too? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, and you will be tested, this world's going to test you, It's going to test you unequivocally so that by discernment 
I can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Biblical principle number six. Assimilate the life of Christ into yours. People say, well, I, I, I don't know how to quite go about doing that. Look at the life of Christ. Study the gospel accounts. Look at how he lived. Look at how he taught. Look at how he lived his life when he came up against the world. Look at the things that he responded with. So much so that Paul could say this in Romans 13. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on, there it is again, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on, put on, put on. Just constant ringing theme, especially as it relates to the things of this world as over against the Spirit. Biblical principle number seven. We have to end here. At every circumstance and at all times, we are called upon to arm ourselves for battle and to pray. That's, that's precisely what Paul says in Ephesians 6, doesn't he? Put on the armor. Put on the armor of God. Do everything you can to thwart the wiles of the devil. And at all times, pray. Pray without ceasing. Pray that God would give you light and guidance and wisdom with regard to the things of this world, the things that draw you in, the things that tempt you, that allure you. Ask for wisdom. James 1.5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, and that's in a context of talking about trials, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and does not hold back, and that wisdom will be given to you. Pray for God's wisdom. Pray for the intensity of the battle. Set your minds on the things above. So, reviewing. Ask yourself what most occupies your time and desires. Actively seek to put off, to kill, to mortify the flesh with its passions and desires. Aggressively seek to put on, to live, to walk in the Spirit in accordance with His will, desires, and character. Acknowledge the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Ascertain which side of the conflict between the flesh and the Spirit you're on. Assimilate the life of Christ into yours. And at every circumstance and at all times, we are called upon to arm ourselves for the battle and to pray. That's hugely important in the Christian life. I've prepared some table questions, and I'll just leave those up there for you. And we'll have maybe about 10 minutes or so of questions and answers if we can. And then you just go right to your table time after we're through and just ask those three questions. You have any questions you want to ask of me tonight before you go to your table time? And I think we may have some roving mics for you there so we can capture it on the on the tape. Yes, sir. Uh, not to put you on the spot, but what have you done personally in your life to fight this battle of worldliness? Well, what I did, Mike, was to sit down and to go through exactly what I have tried to do with those seven principles. And certainly not saying that each one of those I do well. The first battle that I try to go through is the battle for the mind, what I'm thinking about. For instance, practically speaking, if, for instance, I'm somewhere and I see a woman who is not my wife and that woman is attractive... I will attempt to say as much as I can with the pattern and habits of my life, I'm not attracted to her because that's not my wife. That's not my wife. Continually reminding myself of biblical principles like God gave me a woman to be satisfied with, 
be nurtured by, to be cared for by, even in the sexual realm. And so therefore, if that person is not my wife, then Ten Commandments say, you shall not have her. You shall not covet. You shall not take your, your neighbor's wife. And that means taking God's word and putting it in your mind so that when those temptations come, you're able to fight against it because you're setting your mind on the things above. So that would just be one example that I've attempted to do. Other examples, for instance, when you are challenged um, with responses, to be able to ask yourself the question, am I responding now rightly? If I'm not, why am I not responding rightly? And see, all of those are just things that you're doing in your mind to challenge yourself and your thinking. And there will be times when you utterly fail and you are not using those biblical principles to arm yourself. You're not praying as you ought. And you're under a time of conviction at that point and then you ask, what do I do with the conviction? Do I reject it or do I receive it? You see, if I reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then I'm placing myself in definite harm's way by continuing to move further and further away from real joy and intimacy with Christ. And if I get so far out there that I'm not using my mind to arm myself with these biblical principles to fight against sin, sin's going to be so much easier to defeat me. But if I receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit, even when I am doing something wrong and I am sinning, but I receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit and I immediately agree with it and I immediately affirm it and I seek forgiveness, then there's no loss of intimacy with Christ. But if I put those things out of my mind or I justify my actions, then I'm placing myself further and further away from deep and lasting intimacy with Christ. Now, for a, for a true believer, that doesn't mean that you don't have intimacy with Christ. It doesn't mean you've lost it. We're going to find out in 1 John that some of those terms like uh, fellowship, uh, when someone says, and you've heard maybe in Christian circles, someone say, well, so-and-so's out of fellowship with God. Well, according to 1 John, that's not possible because the word fellowship means sharing in a common life. You're in a vital relationship with Christ. You're in a saving relationship to Him. So you're never out of fellowship if you're a Christian. But what we know they mean by that is that they're rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit they're not doing the things they need to do. They're being disobedient. And that intimacy is something that is not close with them. They're not walking in intimacy with Christ. So those are just a few of the practical things. Yes? Maybe more of a, a comment than a question, but the other thing that yeah, I think you touched on is the other theme that Paul, the Apostle Paul touches on in the New Testament of the keeping a clean conscience and uh, walking before God and um, having your conscience tenderized by the Word of God, as it were. And um, that, you know, the, the issue of, of a Christian conscience is, there, there, there are other issues there, but in the, the matter of um, the passions, the desires, the you know, things that you are tempted by, I think that's a, a theme throughout the New Testament which is very important, and maybe you can maybe expound on that. It is very, very important. Paul says in Acts 24, 16, I endeavor to always maintain a blameless conscience both before God and man. That's a, that's a, that's a great statement. It's, a, it's hard to do, of course, but it's a great statement. For instance, the, uh, the Greek word for conscience is synatesis. And it's interesting to trace the number of times there's some kind of adjective that's placed in front of the word conscience. And sometimes, of course, it's a very good adjective, like a clear conscience or a clean conscience. Sometimes, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, that word synatosis is even used for the concept of conscience, conscious, uh, conscience as synonymous with salvation. That somebody had their conscience sprinkled clean, washed clean. Conscience can be used as a synonym for heart, for motives, and that kind of clear conscience for a Christian is vital not only when we first come to Christ, but also throughout the Christian life to have a clean conscience, a clear conscience. Sometimes that adjective can be used in front of the word conscience and it's very negative, like a seared conscience. The idea that 
someone like Paul says to Timothy can have such a seared conscience that they're not sensitive to anything spiritual. And you don't want, even as a Christian, to come to a place where your conscience uh, is so desensitized to sin that maybe you can't even ask some of these questions, let alone answer them, because your conscience is not being activated. I heard someone once say that the conscience is sort of like the flywheel of the engine of a car. And the idea is your conscience is telling you that something is wrong, just like a damaged flywheel will tell you that something's very wrong with that engine. It's not going to run. It's not going to operate. And that conscience is telling you, it's just like pain to the body. Pain to the body is telling you, you must address something. Something's wrong. Something needs to be fixed. The conscience in a person's heart is the very same thing whereby somebody says something's wrong spiritually. I must answer what, what that wrongness is. So the conscience is vital. And it's vital even in this matter of not loving the world. Because if you go into a, to a theater or if you read a book or a magazine or get on the Internet and your first conscious thought is, this is wrong, don't do this, don't, don't look at this, then obeying your conscience is the wisest, most prudent form of action you could possibly do right at that moment. And you can do the very thing that Paul says, put it off, kill it, put it away from you, turn it off, close the laptop, don't look at this. And if you know that you are tempted to do some of those things, put up safeguards that don't even allow you to get to that place where your conscience is going to be pricked. But if your conscience becomes pricked, and sometimes you can't do anything. Yesterday I was getting a, one of those uh, canisters for the grill for propane. And the boys went into the, to the gas station to get the, the propane and get the attendant to come out and, and switch out. And they came out and one of them said, Tad, you would never believe what just happened. And I said, what? He said, the man behind the counter, even uninitiated by us, we didn't say a word. All we said was we need a propane tank. And he started talking about sexual immorality right in front of us and made some very lewd comments, some very unacceptable comments. And he just went on and on and and. He and his brother were just standing there in stunned silence, not knowing what to do, what to say, how to respond. And so they didn't do anything. They just walked out. Now, you didn't raise a laptop. You you didn't look at a billboard. You didn't do anything. You just went into a station and somebody started speaking. You can't avoid that. You can't avoid that in the world. So how are you going to deal with it? Your conscience. If your conscience is violated and that being informed by the Word of God, then you must act upon your conscience. If you don't, you're going to get in trouble. And you're going to desensitize your conscience to the point where you're going to see things as more and more acceptable, more sinful things as greater and greater acceptability. And that's going to get you in a lot of spiritual trouble. Frank? Uh, Lance, uh, you know, your second point, actively seek to kill off the flesh with its passions and desires. That, I think that is great advice. I think that there are a lot of examples, and, and you know, the lists that you gave were, of course, the obvious infractions. How do we see the more subtle lusts of the flesh? How, would, how can we, as believers, actively seek to kill off the more subtle passions of the flesh? Like, for instance, pride... Um, yeah, arrogance, and, you know, there are a lot of times when we act in what we perceive to be Christian virtue, but others can look at us and say, gosh, I, I think he's misunderstanding his own motives. Boy, it's, it's a real tricky thing to be able to say, well, here's the answer to that question, because with as many people as are sitting here, there are going to be that many scenarios for which everyone is going to have a, a different kind of approach. I would simply say, with the lists, for instance, that Paul gives, and I gave several of them, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives actual lists of some of these hideous things. Even Galatians 5, that the works of the flesh. I would say, 
any one of those and all of those are the kinds of things that can either be frontal or subtle. They can either smack you in the face like standing at a gas station and hearing something for which you you had no idea that was coming versus something that, that sneaks up on you and bites you. And I would presume that the only way to be ready for either either camp, either group, is to arm yourself, like Ephesians 6 says, by putting on all of that armament that Paul says and praying at all times so that whether in some kind of frontal attack or in some lesser, more subtle ways, you are ready for anything. And you are saying, God, help me because I don't want to sin against you I don't want to become a reproach to Christ. I don't want to scandalize the church or my family or myself. I want to honor you with my life. Boy, that kind of prayer is going to get the Lord to enact the kinds of protections on you that you desperately are crying out for. He's going to help you because your prayer is sincere and you want to do the right things. The Lord will take up because of the Holy Spirit's perfect application of the truth in your life, the Lord's going to bring you to the place of great victory if you have motives like that. One, maybe... Hey, Lance. Yes. Uh, you said something a second ago that <clears throat> I'd like for you to follow up on a little bit. You said scandalize the church. And I think something in this arena that we really miss because there's a corporate indwelling of the Spirit is not necessarily the scandal that it is, but the harm that our private sin does to the rest of the body. Yes. Uh, if you could spend a couple of minutes on that. Several years ago, John Stott wrote a, a book on the issue of confessing sin. Confess your sins. And he did something that I thought was very, very good. And I've always remembered it. And it is this. There are probably, generally speaking, three kinds of sins. Three kinds of categories of sin. There's private sin, there's secret sin, and there's public sin. Now, most of you are probably not going to be committing public sin because usually that's reserved for public leaders. Now, it could be something that you do that scandalizes the church or yourself in front of the church. Say, for instance, if someone were to to become pregnant out of wedlock and, of course, begins to show physically, that can be something that could be a public reproach on the part of a, a lay person. But normally that's really referring to maybe the public sin of a pastor or a church leader, public sins. Then you have the idea of, of what we might call private sins. And that's the idea that maybe within the church, not necessarily in the world, uh, those kinds of uh, private sins where you sin against maybe some member of your spiritual family. And because of that sin, and it may affect that person or a couple of others, that's where you confess those sins to God, of course, always, first and foremost, and then you go to that private group of people and you confess to them because you've sinned against them directly. But then there's another kind of category called secret sins. And those are the kinds of sins that we sin all the time because they're secret in the sense that they're known only to God and ourselves. And that's not the kind of thing where you would go and confess that to someone around you because they're not even knowing what you're thinking. That's the sins, presumptuous sins, as they are sometimes called, that you sin against the Lord for which only you and the Lord know. And you confess those things to the Lord. You seek forgiveness and you continue to walk in righteousness and holiness. So wherever those appropriate sins need to be confessed, if they're private in the sense that you've done it in a care group or you've done it in a a meeting of some sort or you've done it with another believer. It's very appropriate to confess those to God and then confess those to the appropriate person. That's sort of what James was talking about when he said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. What we ought to be doing is praying for ourselves that first and foremost, we would keep a check on the secret sins of our life. That's what we ought to pray for ourselves individually. Secondly, we ought to be praying for the private sins that we commit toward each other that we would keep those at an absolute minimum. And sometimes that's very difficult to do. And sometimes, like the Proverbs say, with many words, transgression is unavoidable. 
That's going to happen in your families. That's going to happen in the church family. But we ought to try to keep those as a, at, at a minimum as much as possible. And then pray for your church leadership. Pray for your pastors that they would not commit what are commonly called public sins, reproaching sins, sins that have devastating effects upon the entire body because of the sin of one man. They can have devastating effects. So we ought to pray for our pastors and our leaders, pray for ourselves, and then pray for those around us that we would have minimal kinds of sinfulness between ourselves. That's been, that's been helpful for me. Maybe, maybe one last question. Yes. On a practical level, um, I know that there's certain things that are obvious sins of, say, worldliness from certain things we imbibe over the television, Internet, whatever. But <clears throat> let's say that I have a love for certain television programs or going to the movie theater to watch secular movies or listen to certain types of music that are from secular artists or I enjoy watching uh, sports news or whatever it may be that's a habitual thing that I enjoy doing that is obviously a fruit of the world. Are those kinds of things considered a love for the things of the world in the sense of First John 2.15? And to what degree do we try to train our children to refrain from the things of the world that would tend to draw them into a worldliness as we've talked about tonight? Great question. And, you know, our time is gone. <laughs> so, well, our time really is gone. So I tell you what, last Sunday when I talked about movies, someone came up to me and said, you know, clarify this for me. Actually, it was one of the kids of one of the families that said, is Pastor Quinn saying that all movies are wrong? That's a good question. Because if you heard me, you could have construed I think all movies are wrong. That's not necessarily what I believe. I do believe that most of them are wrong because I don't see most of them as glorifying Christ. I don't see most of them as coming out of a context where they're promoting a Christian worldview, et cetera, et cetera. But I certainly don't believe they're all wrong. And I, in fact, I think movies especially, because you're talking about screens with 18 feet high people and and the dramatic portrayal in scenes in movies can be incredibly powerful. In fact, one of the, the most powerful mediums known to us in our culture for the, for the dispersal of information, uh, a worldview, uh, a kind of life or lifestyle. I don't believe that movies in and of themselves are inherently wrong by any means. In fact, they can powerfully portray things. Like, for instance, the recent Fireproof movie. There's another movie that's being produced and ultimately distributed by a good friend of mine that uh, it's called uh, No Greater Love that also has a similar theme about a marriage relationship like Fireproof does. I think those are powerful. I think they're incredibly powerful and helpful and beneficial and great teaching tools. I saw a film a couple of years ago on the life of Esther that was produced by professing Christians. Very powerful type films that can do much good. I think that there have been films that have been done by non-Christian people that are true portrayals of historical events that can prove also to be helpful. Setting records straight. Um, setting records for which revisionist history may have gone on. And somebody's doing a powerful movie that shows that history was, was not to be revised in this way. Things like that. I think those can be powerful. But I think on the main, in the balance, with every single movie that's produced and distributed, I would presume in my own heart that not very many of them at all would be appropriate for Christians. I think we have to be careful on what we download on our iPods in terms of music. Because again, the message that we're sending, especially if we're sending a message that says, I ought to have the freedom you ought to give me the deference to listen to what I want to listen to, could be signaling an attitude that says, nobody's going to run my life. I'm going to do this or that as I please. Go back to the question, am I in love with the world? What about the desires of the flesh? What about the lust of the flesh? I think we have to be careful. Now, I could err on the other side, as some churches do, and say, for instance, make a statement, all movies are wrong, 
uh, all music that doesn't uh, have the exaltation of Christ is automatically wrong, or even this from some legalistic circles, even certain kinds of beats in certain kinds of music are inherently evil. Well, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that music is amoral. It's what you put into it that makes all the difference. Whether it is, in fact, of course, chiefly the words, or even do the words cheapen the idea even of the music itself, trivializing it, which I don't think would be appropriate. So those are just a, a couple of examples. How do you get your kids or how do you get your families or how does a church either teach on the subject or how do we arm ourselves individually as individual families? No way to do that on a corporate level. Just absolutely no way to do that. Each mom, each dad, and dad as the spiritual leader has to determine. For instance, do we have a television in the home? Uh, do we have a computer in the home? If we do, who operates the computer? Uh, how is it to be operated? Uh, do, we, do we watch certain television programs? Uh, do we watch certain sitcoms? Do we watch certain movies? Do we say no to certain things? What kinds of, of plans do we have? Sadly, so many Christians, maybe not necessarily here at the Bible Church, but sadly, so many Christians in their homes don't have a plan. They just do what they do and things by default become temptations from the world that assault you even through your own living room, even through your own house. We've got to come up with a plan. What is that plan? It's going to be different as it's applied by, by different people in different situations. But if you go through this book and you try to determine, like for instance with these passages that we've gone over tonight, what is the plan for our family? And if we have a plan that we believe is reasonably constructed from these biblical principles, you're probably going to do really well. Now, are you going to err at times and say no when you might have said yes and it wouldn't have been a problem? Yes. Are you going to err sometimes when you say yes when upon further reflection the answer should have been no, should not have gone to that movie or should not have done this or should not have watched that program? There have been times in my house where we turned on something assuming it was a good thing. Ten minutes in, you say, no, turn it off. Not good, not helpful. There are times where we've watched a secular program, watched it all the way through, talked about the implications of it. In my family, we watch a lot of sports. The question is how much, how much is too much. The question is what, what do you do during the commercial time? Uh, well, we're fond of keeping that remote in the hand so that as soon as, as the last play is over and the commercial's on, we're flipping it to another game. And that's course for our house not a bad thing at all <laughs> so you have to decide in your own family what's good what's bad what's okay for us and you know what if you believe that you are with biblical principles deciding what's best for your family really for anybody else to come in and say this is wrong I think is stepping over the line now someone might be able to come in and say have you considered this uh, is this appropriate? Uh, could you think through this with me? Or maybe I want to challenge you to think through this more carefully. That's fine. That's good. That's a good thing, especially if you don't have a plan. But the way we want to be careful is not as a church or as individuals saying to each other, you know, you should not be watching that because that's wrong in an automatic level or an extreme level. The question is, how do parents, especially of children, work their way through this matter of the world. And I'm glad we sort of concluded with this because Tim Sin has, I think, about 150 copies. Tim, if you'd begin to pass those out. There's a book that is called Growing Up Christian. And I really want to encourage you to get a copy of this book. It's published by Presbyterian and Reformed Publishers, PNR, called Growing Up Christian. My wife is, is currently reading it. It's really about Christian kids or professing Christian kids growing up in Christian families and how do they contend with all things bad and all things spiritual. And on one of the pages in the middle of this book is what is being passed out to you now. It's just really a two pages that we've been able. We called Crossway this week. We got permission to copy it. We can give at least maybe one per family or one per household. If uh, we have left any left over, you can, you can take copies of that. It's really a good thing. On one side is a column that says what the world says. 
on several fronts, including romance and relationships and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the column on the right, it says what God's word says. And it's a good little gauge, maybe for you and your family, to determine whether it's television, computers, romance, image, dress, modesty, any of those kinds of things that you may be struggling with that you want to say as a Christian parent, I don't want to love the world. I want to be involved in the world. This may be of great help to you. And this book itself may be of great help to you. We've found it to be of of good help to us. And there are other books like that. Men, I really want to challenge every one of you that if you're not in one of the men's studies where we're currently going through this concept of worldliness, I really want to encourage you to do that. If you can't avail yourself of that, please go on the Internet and listen to Dr. Scott Christmas's messages that he did for our men's retreat last and listen to his messages on worldliness. Uh, I commend them to you. And there are many other helpful things that I think you could profit by. Folks, we've gone way, way past our time. But if you have the opportunity to maybe ask some of those questions or at least have some dialogue around your table, that'd be great. And I think we have some refreshments as well.